Into the sanity verse we go! Hey everybody, welcome to Sanity at the Movies, Spider-Verse edition. We are here to talk about, oh man, is, is it Into the Spider-Verse? No, the across, first one's Into the Spider-Verse. Across. Across across the Spider-Verse. And then it's not a spoiler to say that the third is Beyond the Spider-Verse, I guess. We're here to talk about it. A sequel to and one of the episodes that we I get the most like people say, I listened to that episode and had a thought about it from our the past history of this show. Because that was where we premiered the whole ritual decoupled from meaning thing. And the forces of not me perhaps prevailed in that episode. I, mean, I guess we did two episodes. At least that's the consensus that I get is people are like, Nathan, why'd you want to bring your argument to that movie? And I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. You can just go back and listen to it. It's interesting. If you want to hear Ritual Decoupled from Meaning, the classic Sanity at the Movies essay, you go back and you listen to Spider-Verse 2, I think, actually. It's like a, the second episode on the first Spider-Verse movie. But now, perhaps we'll dust off the old gloves and talk about it again, or maybe we won't. I don't know. It's Spider-Verse. It's the second Spider-Verse movie. The most hotly anticipated movie of the summer for most people, for the people in this room. For me. For Jake, certainly. And I don't think it was exactly what any of us were expecting. I don't know. We'll get to it. We'll get to it. My name is Nathan. I'm your humble and obedient host. We've got Benjamin, the preacher who's a teacher of spider stuff. That's right. And Ben, we've already heard him talk. We have. But you still have the privilege of introducing him. I do. It's Pastor Jake Menzel. He's a pastor who's a master of the Spider-Verse. Hey, what's up? Welcome, gentlemen. So, just to recap, what's the thing they always do in these movies? Well, like every time a new character is introduced. Let's the, try this one more time, except yeah. I just botched it. That's yeah, not what it is. Something like that, yeah. Help, help Jake. Jake knows, right? That's kind of what they yeah. do, yeah. Okay, all right, all right. So let's try this one more time. Jake was really excited to, to see this movie. He thought it'd be the best movie this summer. Ben, where did you rank it in our episode? I can't remember. I was excited. I think I was more excited about Guardians of the Galaxy 3. Yeah, I think maybe I was too. Maybe I put the, I might have put this below Flash even. I feel like I didn't do that, but I'd have to go back and look. It feels like something you would do. It does. Just like, the, quite au contraire, my dear <laughs> fellows. Quite, kind the, of, quite the contrary, yes. man. But Jake was obviously excited about this one. Yeah. And I... By the time I walked into the theater, I was very excited about this one. I was trying not to be too excited about this one because I thought there's no way it's going to live up to the hype. Live up to the hype. But by the time I walked into the IMAX theater, sitting in I seat, saw it in IMAX. IMAX seat D14, I think, the movie enveloping me on every side, which was actually not a very good way to watch this movie at all, because there was it's just- It's too busy, right? It was just too busy. I literally could not read the subtitles because I would have to crane my neck and they would disappear before the little- That was true in a normal theater. They were popping out. They were popping out. Like when they threw up panels in the bottom right, little explainer panels, they were gone before you knew it. Well, this movie will actually play better yeah. in that sense on a small screen. Like on That's your right. laptop, you'll be able to absorb a lot more of this information a lot quicker. Or at least I will, the way my brain mm -hmm. works. Because yeah. I'm used to watching video YouTube videos and things that move that fast. But Yeah, it, well, it's just going to be one of those 
It's just so visually packed, which, I mean, points in its favor. Yes, absolutely. I also felt mm-hmm. like actually sitting that close in IMAX, and I, I like to sit close to the screen. I'm not like a idiot that sits in the first row and breaks his neck looking up. I'm not that guy. I don't know who is, but I'm also not. I find, I find most of the time when I go with my friends, they're like, oh, let's sit in row uh, G or H. That's where I like to sit. That's that's the average film goer that accompanies me to the films. But I'm more of like a D or an E kind of a guy. But so I, I like to sit close to the screen and have it envelop me and stuff like that. I enjoy it. A proper IMAX experience. I enjoy like a proper museum IMAX experience where oh, yeah, there's where literal, you, you have no, it's all hmm. your peripheral vision is entirely yeah. absorbed. Yeah, that's, that's Let's go cool watch stuff. a shark movie or a yeah. deep space movie or something like that. It's Here comes the waters of the ocean. I, I had the privilege of watching a documentary on Hollywood special effects that was made for a museum. Mm. I think it was the Chicago Museum of Science and Industry many, many years ago. Sounds like fun. And so you saw scenes from Independence Day and stuff like that. And it was awesome. It was huh. like 30 minutes or something like that. But yeah, I still have I still have really strong memories of doing that sort of thing as a kid and just being wowed by not that one in particular. It was like the shark or whale thing right. or whatever it was and stuff like that. But yeah, man, those are so cool. No, it's really cool if you're just, yeah, one of those, you're on Everest or something like that. Yeah. And it's just, you those just feel awesome. like you're there and you actually, if you're me, at least you're lame enough that you're like holding onto your seat so you don't fall over the cliff. It's really enveloping. I like that stuff. And I actually thought that that's what IMAX was until I saw the Matrix Reloaded in IMAX. And I was like, yeah, it's going to be that enveloping. And then it was just like a big screen and giant close-ups of the pockmarks on Lawrence Fisher's face, which was its own kind of magic. But in any case, I, I think this was the wrong movie for that. For that, I actually think one of the worlds suffered from it, namely Miles's home planet, whatever, what universe is that called? Does any, do either one of you nerds know? No. The, the art style, the backgrounds are all just very abstracted. Like they're yeah. intentionally mm-hmm. blurry sort of blurred. And- and they were so in my face that I was just like, this looks bad. I don't like this. And that may have actually contributed, just honesty and reporting here, that may have contributed to some of the problems that I had with that chunk of the movie, which was the chunk of the movie that I, I sort of had entertainment problems with. I had some sort of broader cultural, whatever, spiritual problems maybe with the movie, but also just there, there was one part where I was less engaged than the other part, and it was that part. And I think some of it may have just been like, this is out of focus. Am I seeing a 3D movie and they forgot to give me the glasses? Like it just kind of had that weird feeling. And then as soon as you got to India or some of the other stops along the way in the multiverse, it did not feel like that at all. And Gwen's amazing opening scene did not feel like that at all. So no. I was I was like worried for some of the movie and distracted. Is this what it's supposed to look like? And then I went and found screen grabs and stuff when I got home. And yep, that's just what it's supposed to look like but i don't remember spider-verse one it wasn't so there was some there is a different visual quality i haven't gone and compared them but memory no it's it i thought it it was very much the same did you Uh, was that sort of pointillism the dots on their faces that was all that that, was all there that i remember it's just the backgrounds a couple of times i was like should i have on 3d glasses for this is that the deal in part one no in this one. In this one, yeah. Well, specifically the scene. I, I'm probably just misremembering. The lovely scene where they're upside down and they have their little romantic kind of. Gorgeous. M- more, yeah, it's gorgeous, but it, it didn't feel as gorgeous as I thought it would, was supposed to just because the background was all. I didn't mind that. Anyway. I was pretty taken with that. Yeah, so. I, I was too. I, th- I think 
maybe all I'm saying is D-Row IMAX was not the way to experience Miles' home world. But a lot of the other stuff was pretty cool. So, And the folks, most of them teenagers that I saw with the movie, certainly enjoyed it. So quick recap. We all love Spider-Verse 1. True. True. Yeah. And although the we all part. Well, you know, Jake, I've been cast as the Spider-Verse 1 hater simply for. Hating it? For daring to question it. (laughs) Daring to not bow the knee to the golden idol. As I recall, what we left off was all, even Jake acknowledged, this is my memory, acknowledging your point that there's something more abstract than just a good dad movie at the core, at the emotional core of Spider-Verse 1. That it is like a creature in reality, or at least that that's an open question. Yeah, I think it's an open question. Yes. Jake made a very plausible argument, which I found, which people come up to me to this day and say, ah, yeah, Jake got you on that. So yeah, obviously it was plausible for most of our people listeners. People come up so. to me and say, yeah, you were right. Yeah, yeah. History will prove me right. And this movie is beginning to prove me right, I think. But I don't know. I we'll, well see. yeah we'll talk about That's it. That's how I feel. But we'll talk about. No, it. I I would put money on it. This is the end of civilization, gentlemen. But it was an enjoyable movie. So, all right, let's. Do we have context for this one, Ben? Yeah, we have con. Do you want context? I've got context. Yeah, I mean, I know people want our takes, so well, uh, we can't do like an hour of context. Or why don't we just delay our takes and make them wait? They have to. I hear about the history of Marvel Comics, which is fun. We did a history of DC Comics for Superman. Got a, I've got a little history of Marvel, which I think is kind of fun, for Spider-Man. Okay. It's not terribly long. All right. Ready? Wait, we, we should give him a teaser, though. We oh, should, we should... a teaser. Okay. So sum up this movie in one word, Ben. Trans. Sum up this movie in one word, Jake. Unfinished. Sum up this movie in one word, Nathan. Complicated. Okay, there we go. Wow. That's a cliffhanger. Okay. <laughs> Marvel Comics. All right, here we go. Marvel Comics started out as Timely Comics in 1939. It was the comic book arm of this dude's publishing company, a dude named Martin Goodman. Guess what? He was Jewish. It's shocking, given what we've talked about before. He, was, he published Pulp Fiction and Men's Adventure magazines, and yes, comic books. Marvel Comics, number one in 1939. I'm not going to do the silly thing, the annoying silly thing I did last time. This, you guys can guess, it featured the first appearance of, it's unlikely you know who. Anyone want to guess? If you get this, I would be amazed. You'd be an actual comic book nerd. You'd reveal yourself right now. Is it Mr. Marvel or something like that? No, it's it's the Human Torch, but it's not that Human Torch. It's the first one. He was an android. It's complicated. By the the way, I should say, yeah, the chronology, we are in our own version of the Spider-Verse here because people won't have heard that Superman episode. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, I'm out of order here. Okay, so... One thing that we're going to be talking about in the future is how all of our entertainment comes from those of Jewish descent. All of our modern entertainment, including comic books, including like pulp publishing, all this stuff, all the guys who invented our favorite comic book characters and made the industry run, they are Jewish. Which is something that they'd be happy to own and yeah. something that yeah. we'd be happy for them to own. Sure. A, that's not like a conspiracy, no, no, conservative no. conspiracy it's theory. It's just, just the reality. Yeah, yeah, it's just the reality. So... And okay, this there's also you won't guess this guy either, but another mm, superhero appears as a villain uh, in this comic book, and it's he actually recently came to life in what I will very sarcastically call the greatest superhero movie of all time. Can you guess what character it might be? He was a villain in a Marvel movie just recently. A bad one, I take it. Yeah, 
that I, that none of us has seen. I think. Oh, uh, is it an MCU movie? Yeah, Quantumania. No, what that's a good guess. What though. Bad. It's Namor, the Submariner from Black Panther Two, Ooh, Wakanda okay. Forever. Yeah. That's right. Crazy yeah. that we didn't even feel the need to I, I, yeah. see that. But I, I know. So Goodman, Martin Goodman, was doing this comic thing to test the superhero thing to test the market. I think he obviously wanted to see if he could imitate the success, the crazy success DC had had just a year before with their 1938 revelation of Superman in Action Comics number one. So what do you know? Marvel Comics number one sells out. 80,000 copies. Goodman is, yes, I've got a hit. Comic books are going to work for us. He does a second printing. It sells 800,000 copies. Just like that, Timely Comics is, oof, they're on the road. So 1941, they published their third major character, this one you guys might actually be able to guess. It's not Spider-Man, but it's another very important MCU character. Brainchild of one of the greatest. This is 1941. Brainchild of one of the greatest. Captain most important, America. Yeah, there you go. Most important comic book artists, writers of all time. Do you know the name of this guy? Nathan, you might. Uh, it's not Stanley. It's no. the artist guy. Yeah. Is it Kirby? Yeah, Kirby? there you go. No. Very good. Jack Kirby. We'll talk more about him. He's interesting. Captain America, very successful. Hits the shelves during World War II. He starts out, of course, as a super soldier fighting the Nazis. The famous cover of his first book is him punching a very distressed Hitler in the face. Hitler didn't like that, huh? Hitler didn't like that. Jack Kirby, what a shock. He was born Jacob Kurtzberg. Turns out he's Jewish. So Kirby's hired on staff at Timely Comics. He doesn't stay very long, but he'll be coming back. Around the same time, Martin Goodman hired his wife's cousin, also a Jew, and this guy has a catchphrase. Very famous. You just said his name. Excelsior. There you go. It's Stan Lee. He'll be a mainstay of Timely or Marvel. Creative Spider-Man. Hired 1941. So now just like DC Comics is doing, Timely Comics is putting out mm, comics about everything. Westerns. He started working in 1941. Yeah. And he just died. Like we just used up his last appearances. So he was. It, yeah. He was like going on 100, or he was 100. Uh, something like that. I didn't look up his age at time I mean, I death. knew he was old, but I, I never clocked. Yeah, he's, man. Assuming he was older than 20 when he began working at Timely, whatever. I think, I think he was actually younger than 20, if memory serves. You could look that up, but I didn't record his age. So yeah, so he's he comes into the comics biz. All kinds of comics are coming out. Westerns, horror, kaiju monsters, romance, and a few superheroes. To 22 to 18. Okay, so yeah, there you just go. shy of died at age ninety five. Centi- died at age ninety five. Yeah. Centenarian, just a month before his ninety sixth birthday. Wow, nice. Yeah, well, he he had some staying power. Yep, didn't look a day over. Some yeah, <laughs> that's right. All right, so and we should remember what we mentioned several times on this podcast. Then, as now, comic books—they're the cutting edge of violence, of lurid content. Yeah, lots of fun stories, sure. But they got the violence. They got the buxom babes. They've got uh, everything's in pictures. The teenage boys are devouring this stuff. Martin Goodman, he's, these men's adventure magazines. This is a genre of magazines that was popular from the 40s to the 70s. Well, what were these things? Well, there were some adventure stories. They were like the pulpiest kind. Fiction, some quote-unquote nonfiction stories about war, all amped up. Jungle trips, fights with wild animals, and pinup photos. Nude or nearly nude stuff. And these things, they either morph into porn magazines or they're just the precursor to porn magazines. I'm sure a lot of our listeners will be familiar with the iconography. Like it would be like a painted, almost Norman Rockwell like right. image. There'd be like a lady in 
negligee. She's tied up. There's a mad Nazi doctor or something. And then there's like a sort of two-fisted Indiana Jones type. Fighting a leopard. In the <laughs> Fighting a leopard. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, we probably just described without exaggeration something. That... We probably did. I mean, that probably exists. So so this is your friend, friendly sound of sanity reminder that pulp stories and comic books considered as an industry, as a storytelling medium, they're highly correlated with the porn industry and pornographic content. And I think it's, that's natural given the way that visual storytelling leads our sensibilities. It's always the edgiest and the most sentimental and the most shocking and the most colorful stuff. It's a recipe for producing a lot of trash. So there you go. You're welcome. On that note, back to the history of Marvel, 1950s timely rebrands to Atlas Comics. And due to competition with TV shows, the comics industry starts going downhill. And they're like, we're done with superhero stuff. We'll keep publishing other kinds of comics. Maybe we, sh- maybe we should just shut the comics division down, actually. But, but our hero, not Stan Lee, but our hero, Jack Kirby, comes back in 1958. He's going to stay until 1970. And during this time, Atlas as a whole is going to become really successful. And starting in 1961, they're going to make superhero comics really successful again. 1961 is when the Marvel branding just takes over. Mm -hmm. So during this time, Jack Kirby is the guy who creates a ton of the Marvel stuff that you know and love, or at least you know and you know, and you may have seen it in MCU movies. So X-Men, Hulk, Iron Man, Ant-Man, Thor, Black Panther, Silver Surfer, Groot, the Fantastic Four. Stan Lee and Jack Kirby fought over who should get credit for the Fantastic Four. Stan Lee, of course, he's also this dynamic creative force whose work as a writer and editor helps make Marvel successful especially their superhero stuff. And hey, so before, before we keep going, speaking of Fantastic Four, no one today cares. And no, none of us here probably likes it. But that's because all we've been exposed to is the movie adaptations, which are hot garbage. Marvel, it was Marvel's first team superhero comic. The idea was to imitate DC's Justice League, which was pretty successful. People, people love Fantastic Four. Why? Well... And it was so successful that it actually convinced Stan Lee not to leave the comics industry, which he was considering at the time. Why? So Stan Lee and Jack Kirby very famously came up with a new flavor for superheroes, which feeds directly into Spider-Man, which is this. Superheroes can have money problems and marriage problems and behave like ordinary people who happen to have special powers and have to deal with supervillains. So this is pre-Spider-Man. Fantastic Four cracks this formula. And Kirby also was an awesome artist. He was experimental with panel layouts. He was experimental with visual effects. He has this famous way of drawing energy fields called the Kirby Crackle. You've probably seen somewhere. You, you know Jack Kirby's style. Yeah. You know it's, that that's what it's called or as not. Soon, yeah, as soon as you know who he is, you connect the dots if you've read any comics, any older comics at all. And Kirby also, Kirby loved these big like cosmic stories. So the Fantastic Four would have, in addition to marriage problems, they'd, they'd have cosmic adventures like the one with Galactus, the world-devouring entity who wants to eat the earth, which is considered one of the greatest superhero stories ever. I've been very tempted reading about Kirby to go back and read it. All the early Fantastic Four stuff is considered classic by comic books nerds. Like, it just pushes storytelling. So maybe someday they'll make a decent movie out of it. I don't know. Stanley, anyway, was firing on all cylinders. Jack Kirby's firing on all cylinders. Right? What in the world is the problem with this? No, they did. What? Oh, sorry. I thought you were saying the solution. Is to just cast it correctly. I don't know what the casting is. They, they did just cast it. Yeah, let's... Is it a bunch of... Wh- is it... What's his name for Mr. Fantastic or not? Let me pull it up. 
Adam Driver. For Mr. Fantastic? Mm-hmm. Huh. Really? Margot Robbie. That's... Is this... This is leaked alleged? I think these are leaked all but confirmed. David Diggs, all right. Our good friend as Ben Grimm and Paul Mascal as Johnny Storm. Paul Mascal, yep. Who? Who's that? I don't know who that is. You'd recognize his face. He's an up-and-comer. He's going to be in the new Gladiator and stuff like that. Well, that could make it work, but if it's going to be an MCU movie, yeah, I don't know. So, all right. Stanley and Jack Kirby are awesome together. Here's a quote from a comics historian named Charles Hatfield. About Charles Hatfield. Charles Hatfield. <laughs> about various collaborations they did. So, quote, Offsetting the formulaic nature of the stories was a dash of invigorating absurdity. The tales had Kirby's energy and courtesy of Lee, confessional first-person titles typical of sensation-mongering tabloids and comics, such as, I created Spore, the thing that could not die, oh, unquote. Man. Confess! <laughs> <laughs> so Stanley creates Spider-Man in 1962, and he, do- he creates him with another famous comic book artist named Steve Ditko. Everyone's favorite web crawler appears in Amazing Fantasy number 15, Jack Kirby, does the cover, he does not draw the comic because Stanley thought that Kirby's style made Spider-Man look too heroic, at least some early version of Spider-Man that he was trying to figure out. Like we've said before, Spider-Man is the epitome of the ordinary guy with extraordinary powers that Marvel learned to cash in on, and it sells right away. It's really popular. He gets his own comic book line, Amazing Spider-Man, which is still around. In 1965, the magazine Esquire did a poll of college students to find their top revolutionary icons. And they picked Che Guevara, Bob Dylan, and Spider-Man. One of the students said, He is beset by woes, money problems, and the questions of existence. In short, he is one of us. Everyone feels that way about Spider-Man. He taps into this existential ox of awkward teenagers. He's one of us. And Stanley did that on purpose. Um, somewhere, by the way, just this was odd, further down on the same list was the Hulk, <laughs> of all things. So here's another quote about the Marvel secret recipe from... A writer, quote, Superman and DC Comics instantly seemed like boring old Pat Boone. (laughs) Marvel felt like the Beatles in the British invasion. It was Kirby's artwork with its tension and psychedelia that made it perfect for the times. Or was it Lee's bravado and melodrama, which was somehow insecure and brash at the same time, unquote. Influence for Spider-Man, it included the pulp novel hero, The Spider, not to be confused with a later British comic book anti-hero, The Spider. The Spider was a masked crime fighter. He's not a superhero. He had a few things in common with Spider-Man. He was a vigilante. He was opposed by criminals and by the law, like, Sp- like at least early Spider-Man was. He had a kind of sixth sense that he developed through practice, kind of like Spider-Man's spider sense. And he had, he had his web, this thin rope. All right, you can find some old serials of the Spider. If you look, you can find clips on YouTube. I did. And, oh, by the way, the reason there's a hyphen in the name Spider-Man was to just differentiate the name visually from Superman, give people something. So um, Jack Kirby has made some claims, or he did before he died, that Stanley didn't create Spider-Man. He, Kirby, did, along with the writer, Joe Simon. And Simon claimed the same. But this stuff is really hard to substantiate. From what I can tell, yeah, Stanley basically created Spider-Man with Steve Ditko. They sort of share credit. Ditko came up with web shooters, the red and blue costume. He was like, it should cover Spider-Man's face. That will let people imagine that they're Spider-Man. So they share credit. I, a little bit more about Jack Kirby, who's just an interesting dude. In 1970, he went to Marvel. He left Marvel to go to DC for five years. He was angry that he didn't have the creative control he wanted, which this is a theme. You're going to hear 
when you hear our Superman episode and you hear about Siegel and Schuster, some of the same things are like, we didn't get enough credit. And uh, these guys are all like this. So he didn't have the creative control he wanted. He was angry at Stanley's pride of place in the company and the public eye. Stanley was really good at self-promotion. He, he was angry. He hadn't been given the well, credit. Stanley, uh, he, uh, sorry to interrupt. Go he, ahead. He will write himself into, he'll be like, hey, fans, it's your buddy Stan. Like that's, yeah, that's right. That's a caption in a comic book. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Stanley <laughs> just promoted himself within the pages of he's, Marvel. He's great at that. And he had the right position in Marvel to do that. And Kirby is just an artist anyway. So, so Stanley, Stanley is well known. And Kirby's like, I should be given more credit for creating this giant stable of superheroes. So he goes, he, he goes to DC. He develops some weird and mythic stuff that we don't really care about, like the new gods and Mr. Miracle, the forever people. The one thing that you might know from this run is the villain, Darkseid, because he's one of the new gods. He makes an appearance as the big, big, big bad behind the scenes in Zack Snyder's Justice League. And all that kind of stuff, like the cosmic stuff, the mythologizing, that's what Kirby was into. That's what he like got him going. Here's a couple of evaluations of his work I found on his Wikipedia page to give you the flavor. Kirby's mix of slang and myth, science fiction in the Bible made for a heady brew, but the scope of his vision has endured, or... Th- like the comics writer Grant Morrison said, Kirby's dramas were staged across Jungian vistas of raw symbol and storm. The fourth world saga crackles with the voltage of Jack Kirby's boundless imagination let loose onto paper. All right. It kind of makes me want to go look at it. Well, it, the fourth he world is stuff. definitely the forebearer of Spider-Verse, of things that yeah. are happening in comic book movies now, things that yep. we couldn't have gotten to in the 90s or early 2000s because people weren't ready for that level of... right metatextual analysis that level of yeah. cosmic world building like he he gives it a myth and that's not something that your average pedestrian would have associated with comics until now no that's true he also when he came back to marvel he created eternals and celestials which form the basis for a truly terrible marvel movie i'm sure his original comics are at least interesting so in Marvel, back to Marvel, late 60s, Martin Goodman sells Marvel and continues to act as a publisher. In the early 70s, Stanley takes over publishing, editing. He's Marvel's president for a little bit. The 70s, the market for the comic books is just in flux in general. Comics are having a hard time. They've been relying on sales at newsstands. Newsstand distribution is not doing so well. That's where you like you buy the comics and you and then if you it, whatever you don't sell, you return for a refund. <laughs> And comic book publishers are like, this is not working. So they start doing direct sales where it's just like the comic book store buys the comic. And if you're stuck with it, if it doesn't sell, but maybe you're going to hold on to it until people are interested and sell it for more money later. So the whole market, the way that they do things is changing. And just just briefly, let's jump to the 90s, which is a bunch of my childhood and adolescent years. The 90s is where you get these more ambitious animated shows about the X-Men or Spider-Man there's been a bunch of versions of Spider-Man, especially before. And by now, in the 2020s, wherever we are, there's been a million animated versions of Spider-Man. Some of them really good quality from the little that I've seen. Marvel's trying to branch out into other... They partner with the Christian publisher Thomas Nelson to make Christian comics. They do a comic book of the sentimental Christian novel In His Steps. I, I've read it. I think I might have used to own it. I Maybe even I've read that novel. Oh my goodness. They create a Christian superhero called The Illuminator which had a total of three issues before dying. (laughs) I own two of them. I would have loved to have the third. It's about a teenager who gets hit with a beam of light, and before you know it, he's using his powers of light 
to to fight demon possessed psychopaths and stuff like that. It's really, really violent and gross. Pretty sure it has nothing to do with Christianity. I read my two issues over and over again. Anyway, the comic book industry really slumps in the mid and late 90s. Marvel has become Marvel Entertainment Group, but it files for bankruptcy in 1996. They're bought by Toy Biz the next year, and they become Marvel Enterprises. And this is the era where Avi Arad, if you know his name, becomes the chief creative officer of Marvel Entertainment, and he founds Marvel Studios. And he is, yes, that's right, he's Jewish. He's Israeli-American. What can I say? And under his leadership, Marvel stabilizes. It becomes financially viable. They start optioning film rights. Even Men in Black was from a comic book that was part of an imprint owned by Marvel. Blade, the X-Men, all this early stuff. And then Disney buys Marvel in 2009. And that brings us to the present day of not so great movies in the MCU as they've, at least as they've, as they've gone along. In a day where Marvel is the current comic book sales leader over DC by a significant percentage of sales. Except, of course, manga is outselling them both. There's a lot more we could say about how Marvel actually makes its money. A lot more details about comics industry and the times that Marvel almost failed or collapsed. But suffice to say that most superheroes these days are financially successful, not through comics, but through branding and through merchandising. I mean, I know kids that read manga that buy it. Yeah. Do do any of us know a child that reads not even graphic novels, but no, the comic, like comic books. No, no, no. You just don't see that. No, you, no, you barely saw it when we were kids, but you really don't see it now. No. One more word about- The market about, just aged up. Yeah. It yeah. never aged out. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's That's true. the market for the com- for comic books. Yeah. They're, yeah. Like, because of Spider-Verse, I have all of these Spider-Man comic book stuff showing up in my Twitter feed and whatever else for me. Yeah. And I couldn't care less. Yeah, it's all millennial. It's like the, it's the, it's the stupid Simpsons character, the comic book guy or whatever. It's that guy. Anyway. Yeah. Well, I think the last thing to say is that Spider-Man is very a lucrative property, obviously. But so in in 2014, it was earning 1.3 billion a year through its licensed product. And that's the most of any superhero. I mean, at the same time as Spider-Man was getting 1.3 billion, the Avengers were getting 325 million, Batman 494 million, Superman 277 million. Spider-Man's revenue is more than all those heroes combined. Even though Batman, for instance, will reliably place ahead of Spider-Man on polls for the greatest superhero of all time. Sometimes Superman will, but not always. And then there's one other hero I saw, this is the last thing, who places ahead of Spider-Man regularly. I say regularly, I looked at four or five big polls. So I wonder if you guys could guess who it is. What superhero? So Superman and Batman are already out? Yeah, not Uh, them. Iron Man. No, 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 no. It's an MCU guy? Yeah. Hulk? He's the best he is at what he does, and what he does isn't pretty. Oh, the Punisher? No. Wolverine? There you go. Oh, of course. Yeah. Man, society is lame. <laughs> Wolverine's awesome. <laughs> what? Maybe, what are you talking about, Nathan? Nice. <laughs> Wolverine's so lame. Wolverine's always been lame. I love Wolverine. Ooh, it's Dirty Harry, but with claws. <laughs> That's what we need. That's what the world needed. I, I love Wolverine. He smokes a cigar. He calls people bub. He has a tragic backstory. That's better than Dirty Harry. He has a heart of gold underneath his rough exterior. Yeah, it's rough exterior. Just like everybody else. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's the best. He is at what he does. He's the best stereotypical thing that he is. Anti-hero? Yeah. 
Ameri- yeah. tra- classic American tragic anti-hero. Yeah, he is. He is a, he's one of the coolest. He's bit. a Western. Oh. He's a cowboy throwback. I, I wish that he's every he had Harrison better movies to be in. Yeah, absolutely. He's uh, all that. I like he's all that in a bag of chips. Ackman, but <sighs> oh well. Is that everything? That's everything. Well, I can talk us through Spider-Man movie stuff real quick. Just all right. So Marvel actually sold Spider-Man to Canon, the the dumb producer of Chuck Norris action movies in nineteen. 19- 85 and then the rights like this is how low marvel was like and how little sort of belief they had in these properties and and how little sort of cultural cachet and artistic value people were putting on them mm-hmm. like, ah, can we make a little bit of money by selling the rights to a b-movie studio and then the rights jumped around and it came down to a complex legal web between MGM, who ended up with the rights from Canon, and Columbia, who was owned by Sony at the time, who just bought the character outright from Marvel in 1999. It's weird. You can sell like different pieces of the character. It's, I mean, we've all seen this in with the negotiations between Disney and Sony. It's like these people over here own action figures. These people over here own the mm-hmm. books. These people over here own the iconography. It's like, it's all so complicated. So basically, Spider-Man got bandied around. You can find a lot of fun, almost Spider-Verse things, some universes that we didn't get. You can find James Cameron's screen, dark screenplay for Spider-Man written in the, the 80s. Like Everybody was trying to figure out how to make this character work. But basically, it came down to Columbia and MGM around the turn of the millennium are, are trying to get this figured out. And... James Bond, I think I said this on the first Spider-Verse episode, but James Bond is the man who saved Spider-Man because basically, I'm going to confuse which studio was which, but MGM, they both had the rights to James Bond and they both had the rights to Spider-Man basically. And so it was like, we can both just be mutually destroyed or one of us can take James Bond and one of us can take Spider-Man. And they worked it out and so we got that wonderful run of we got the last what's his face movie we got die another day with pierce Brosnan, and then we've got the daniel craig movies that came out of that and eventually it led to the james bond people getting the rights back to specter and blofeld and all that sort of thing so james bond became what james bond became and meanwhile sony had the rights to spider-man and they got sam raimi fun indie director to make the first movie that had a hundred million dollar weekend and uh, won the best kiss at the MTB Movie Awards. And so it should have. It's a great kiss. And introduced Spider-Man to a broader public. And then Spider-Man 2 rocked everybody's world. And then Spider-Man 3 came out in 2007. The studio was like, we got to put in Venom. It's what the fanboys want. Let's ruin this. And they ruined it. And Sam Raimi couldn't, was so demoralized by that, he couldn't get it together in time for Spider-Man 4. Sony has, I think it's it's important to know that Sony their deal to this day is that they have a five-year window in which to make another Spider-Man movie. If they ever go five years without making a Spider-Man movie, they lose the rights. I forgot about that. Yeah, And so that's why, like when Garfield was cast, everybody was like, what? You're already, now it feels like, oh, whatever. We just, you, there's a new this Batman every do. day. This is what yeah. we do. These characters can't, we can't let go yeah, of this Yeah, but I remember idea. feeling that. Yeah, it was like, Me too. you're, you're going like, to retell. What in the world? Yeah. We're just restarting that this quickly. This quickly. It felt, and we have another origin story where Uncle Ben has to die again. It <sighs> felt borderline insulting. Yeah. But 
but yeah, in any case, it's, the the rights will revert fully back to Marvel if Sony ever does not meet that production window, which explains why we have an animated Spider-Man over here and a Tom Holland Spider-Man over here and the Garfield stuff. And yes, I think that is most of what you need to know about cinematic Spider-Man. Miles Morales was created as late as 2011 by by Brian Michael Bendis, a author of comics. I don't know what to say. Well, can I say, he he wrote The Ultimate Spider-Man, which is every, Marvel sort of, I won't say rebooted, but they created an alternate version of their own universe in an alternate line of comics without stopping the old universe from running called The Ultimate universe right so ultimate spider-man is actually at least for probably 70 issues or so is awesome yes i know people love it's that. fantastic it's so much fun it's like i read and absorbed all the spider-man and all the different continuities for like 50 years now here's this it is super fun the art is great it doesn't do everything right but man what a fun comic if yes, you like that, spider-man and miles morales is actually a very cynical creation Obama was about to be president in 2008 and Marvel's then editor-in-chief Axel Alonso was like, hey, we're about to elect an African-American president, so maybe we need to retcon and and or do something with some of our icons. So basically, we don't have enough black characters. So with that inspiring dictum, the Marvel Brain Trust set out to find a way to they were banding around like can we actually just replace peter parker or make him black but they ended up just creating, creating character miles morales who i don't think i don't actually have this documented anywhere i'm not sure he was super well regarded before the i have only the vaguest memory of him never read any comics with him in it so i don't know i think people maybe even people of color felt sort of exactly like you'd feel a little pandered to like this this isn't actually coming from an organic felt place for anybody but lord and miller got their hands on it in the 2010s lord and miller need i remind us are two uber nerds who met at dartmouth they're ivy leaguers that were interested in animation and the reason that they have a career is because they were on the alumni magazine at dartmouth with eric eisner the son of michael eisner the then ceo of disney and eric was just like hey dad you should check these guys out they're really there's something they've got real talent and they did and they got a chance to do cloudy with a chance of meatballs and they created a super uber nerdy funny movie that didn't make any sense and you can actually find a ted talk that either lord or miller did on this that's kind of interesting they created cloudy with a chance of meatballs and it was just like everything that a critic of the Spider-Verse movies might lob at it. It was just like so navel-gazing and circular and... I remember really liking it. Well, I'm not actually talking about the movie as made because that movie, they actually got fired from that movie. The movie got... Because, you know, like comedy writers loved it and stuff, but the executives were just like, we don't know what to do with this. This doesn't make any sense. They fire Lord and Miller. They kick around the property for a year trying to make it work. I don't know why everybody is so... We must do Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, but... (laughs) It's in production. They've already spent money on it. And so they go round and round and round. They finally bring Lord and Miller back and say, which is one of those things that doesn't usually happen, but maybe it's a testament to how talented and likable these guys really are. And Amy Pascal, the one of the big executives at Sony, is just like, guys, you have to have a story 
with emotions that people can connect to. And Lord Andor Miller talks about this in his TED talk. He's just like, that was the thing is he's like, thank goodness for this executive because that was the key to our entire careers. We backfill, we, we turned it into a father-son story. We found a f- generic character who'd already been designed. We weren't, we'd already spent money on the designs. We couldn't redesign them, but we found a guy who looked like a dad and just wrote him now as the main character's dad and created a thing that everybody could connect to. And then we could layer all of our jokes and our meta commentary onto that. And suddenly people were connected and people cared. And it was the most important lesson in our entire lives. And of course, you can certainly see that in their subsequent work. They've gone on to do 21 Jump Street and obviously they got fired off the solo movie. And what's what are their other ones? The Lego movie. The Lego movie, of course, yes. All movies with a really smart three-act structure with heart on which to build their deconstructionist fun narratives. Like they're, they really are as smart as anybody operating. You could compare them to Pixar, maybe Pixar, Glory Days, Pixar. Mm-hmm. You could compare them just in terms of we've got guys with a really great, not innate, but learned story sense and uh, that are going to give us something to really connect to and feel things about, but they're also really funny and metatextual oftentimes in the best way. Like they, it's not a good movie for whatever reason. I saw 22 jump street, the sequel to 21 jump street. I don't even remember why. Cause I hate those kinds of movies, but the amount of, Hey, it's a sequel. Isn't it dumb that people make, that they made us make 22 Jump Street, the, the amount of that 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 movie does and the cleverness with which it does it and the affection with which it does it and the ability to then have an emotional story at the core that you care about, but also it's, all, it's a movie about how dumb comedy sequels that the studio makes you make are stupid. It's like these guys are operating at a whole other level in terms of the ability to do all that stuff hmm. without any of the individual pieces destroying the other pieces Hmm. let's like we talked about before the lego movie the lego movie is a deconstruction of the hero's journey right with a ton of affection for the hero's journey and so it's sweet and it's funny and it's charming and it's got its emotional beats and it works as a sort of meta commentary on the hero's journey that's also a love letter to the hero's journey right and functions actually as a hero's journey like the movie is in fact a hero's journey and has this whole father-son story subtext that's behind it all. Right. So here before they've been able and to... pulls it all together at the end. Yes. Apparently Kathleen Kennedy didn't think that they could pull this off with Solo, and so she fired them. Now She's an idiot. She's an idiot. Also, it is hard to imagine their brand meshing very well with the sort of self... The sincerity, the, the sincerity of, the star, of, of Star Wars. Of Star Wars. But if it was going to fit in anywhere, it would have been in the stup- the my most hated of Star Wars corners, the sort of rogue world which i've never cared about personally yeah in any case that's lord and miller spider-verse has been extremely influential as an animated property we saw that in the trailers with the teenage mutant ninja turtles trailer yeah i don't think we got that on my screening but i have i've I've seen that trailer and it is that also just the idea that cgi animate i mean it's such an obvious idea but somebody has to do it cgi animation doesn't have to look the same we can do different things what spider-verse actually is is an incredibly labor-intensive, and the second movie was even more expensive and labor-intensive process where they make a CGI movie and then they are digitally painting over the frames. So people are going in individually. It's not just computers. It's somebody with a pen and an iPad or whatever 
that's drawing over computer animation that's already been made. So it's a little bit like the old style, if you've ever seen the Ralph Bashke, Lord of the Rings, where they would rotoscope, where they just take photography of humans doing things or animals doing things and just draw over it to get a very... But in this case, you're animating stuff and then you're drawing over the animation and you don't need me to tell you that you can do some pretty impressive and cool You get your CGI to give you all of the motion and all of the effects and then you go back and you give it a really hand-drawn quality frame by frame. Yes. Now I did personally, this isn't really a complaint, just an observation. I did find that in this particular movie... I don't remember this being the case in Spider-Verse, that there, there was a little bit of uncanny valley for me personally, just particularly Gwen and Miles look so, come so close to just being human, but then they're animated that there were certain things maybe with their faces that I was just like, I would actually prefer the exaggeration of a Disney character caricature or something like that, as opposed to even the caricaturing of a beautiful woman like Belle or something like that actually would for me work a little bit better than these characters that are come so close to being just photorealistic but aren't but i'm sure that's just me in any case i think that that's all the prelude so who wants to go first we have trans we have did i say complicated was that you said complicated and i said incomplete incomplete Or unfinished or something like that. Who do our listeners want to hear from first? Do you want to go first with incomplete or do you want... No, I want to hear trans. You want to hear trans? Okay, let's let's get the most provocative take out of the way. Sure, yeah. Let's see, where to start? So I was really looking forward to Spider-Verse. I am a fan of the first one. I am uncomfortable with it. I think think my opinion of it has solidified into, yeah, it is a deconstruction type movie. It's not really about father and son. It's about, you need to construct your own identity. Don't let anyone stand in your way. And uh, I don't know. It's hard now that I've seen the sequel to say that was as, it wasn't as solid as it was after I saw this movie, for sure. Well, let me me push back immediately though. Yeah, please. Yes. But these guys are too smart to just do the dumb thing that Ryan Johnson would do, where he's just like middle finger to to family, to the patriarch, like he, where he just wants to alienate half of his audience. Because at what, they, what it actually seems like they might be doing is, yeah, Miles needs to construct his own identity. But the reason that he's able to do that is because he's got a strong family and he comes from a I think that family. argument is still entirely intact and plausible. I think that what sets, what you can argue, and you don't have to agree with this, but I think that it's still plausible to argue that what sets Miles apart from all the other Spider-Men in across the Spider-Verse is that Miles has a good mom and dad. I think that's and, what they would argue. And I think that's the story that they, I think that's the story that, I think that's the text. And you can say that, I think you, we can have an argument about, okay, well, that's the text, but what's the subtext? But the text is, Miles has a good dad and a good mom, and it's what every other Spider-Man has never had and it's what sets miles apart and makes him the best of them all and gives him a chance to sort of surpass them and write his own story it's which the by the way the, of his and foundation of his strong family this is just the ritual decoupled from meanings argument again because my if people don't remember or haven't listened to those episodes what i basically said was when miles powers up at the end like he's at his lowest point it's the here part of the hero's journey where he has no 
power. The end of the Empire Strikes Back, and we haven't gotten to Return of the Jedi yet. It's that part of the story. And so he needs to find his inner strength, as a hero always does. And I just argued, there's nothing built into the movie that tells you why he does it. It's just the time in the movie where the character would do that. And so I coined my famous phrase, ritual decoupled from meaning, which is just a way of expressing what's true of so many Hollywood movies these days, where we're going through the ritual, we're doing the act of a superhero movie or a hero's journey, but we don't have the actual morality behind it, the actual emotional legwork behind it, the actual things, the actual stuff that empowers these types, the typology behind it. It isn't actually there. It's just the remnants. It's, it's, there's something kind of postmodern about it. It's like we're still playing with all these tropes. Like, of course, the hero is going to power up. But did the movie actually do that work or did just our expectation of a movie doing that work do that work for uh, us? For us? Mm-hmm. To which Jake responded. Actually, the story is that all of Miles's mentors, Peter B. Parker and his friends and his found family, didn't have the power to help push him across that line. Right. And so they tied him up and left him in a room. And then the actual thing that was transformative for Miles was this moment where his dad comes and knocks on the door. He's sitting there tied up. He's given up on life and on himself and on his ability to have powers. And his dad just gives a speech and he's like, I don't know if you're there. I don't know if you're listening, but I see this spark in you. It's why I push you. I love you, Miles. I'm sorry if I've screwed this all up. And that's the moment where uh, Miles finds his resolve and begins to level up, breaks his bonds, and then goes and figures things out. So the Obi-Wan character, the mentor character, the Peter B. Parker, the found family, all that stuff, none of that worked for Miles. But his dad saying, I believe in you. I'm sorry. I feel we're growing apart. Your uncle just died. Something happened. I don't want that to be us. I push you. I feel like maybe I've pushed you away, but it's because I love you and I believe in you. That's the moment. Miles's connection is in his strength and his power is actually his relationship with his father. Right. And so everybody that heard you make that argument found it very plausible, and I did too. Likewise. I still feel doubt in my heart. And I think they'd make that argument too. I think they'd say that's obviously what we're doing. That's the text. But there is something in me that says there's a disconnect here. And what I said at the time in those episodes, I think if you go back, as I said, eventually these guys are going to betray us and it's going to be obvious that there was never anything there. Like they're going this deconstructionist route. They're on the cutting edge of it. And one day we'll get the movie that. I think it's, can I, if I could try to put it this way, see if this is helpful. It's a question of whether or not Miles' identity is and his ability to have a solid identity as Spider-Man is a function of like the love of his family and love of his dad in particular or whether all of that stuff how do I put this it's a question of hierarchy like is Miles's identity sort of subordinate to his man I guess I don't have the language for this help me out here I'm trying to it's a chicken or egg question in terms of what the filmmakers actually do is his identity come from his family or is his family just sort of just one of the ingredients with which he constructs his identity? On, yeah, on okay, this. so this, one, is one why, this is why you have to lay out your trans argument yeah. and why I have to tell you why you're wrong. 
Okay, so yeah, that brings us back or, to... Or why you may be right, but we don't know yet. All right. Yeah, so... Yeah. Well, I think... So having laid all that out, of course, very important to see what they do in the third movie because it's going to push it... You didn't perfectly articulate what you wanted to say, but I think we all have a sense of what you wanted to say. And the third movie, I think, will help answer that question. Like, yeah. how much is this just a meta sort of whatever? Well, so what I felt watching this movie is this movie is just toying. It's just an abstraction of storytelling. It's about how you create your own identity. And the way that you do that is by breaking the bonds of those who are over you and try to tell you who you are. And you say, no, I create my own story. And you say it especially to all the stupid dads that you have, because in this movie, dad sucks. And yeah, you can tell me that in the text of Miles' story, it's just dad flailing again. But I say, no, Miles' dad is bad. Suddenly he has no idea what to say, and he's both weak and a tyrant at different points. He's either like, I have no idea what to say to you, how to lead you, or I'm just going to yell at you. So it's, it's either sort of pathetic or tyrant. In both cases, it's weak. You have Oscar Isaac's Spider-Man 2099 who's more just pure tyrant. He's a father figure. He's a bad dad. All he knows how to do, just like Miles' dad, is yell at him and assume that that should have done the job. And then you have uh, Gwen Stacy's dad, Spider-Gwen's dad, who's, who alternates between weak and a tyrant. He doesn't know what to say to his daughter. And then he's like, without listening to you, I'm just going to arrest you because somehow my duty as a cop overrides all the actual ways that I should be investigating, talking to you and figuring out what happened as my daughter. And the movie has this, it's just, it's actually a pretty clumsy plot point, I think. This is all spoilers, folks. We didn't say that, I guess, did we? But all spoilers. All episodes are spoilers. I know. Yeah, they should know. You should know by now, listener. And, and then at the end of, of the narrative of Gwen and her dad that we get in this movie, Gwen's dad is going to say, hey, as he's sort of trying to make things right with her, heal the relationship hey, I'm not, I'm not going to be a captain anymore. And she's like, you're not going to be a captain. Why? The greatest, you know, the most important thing or the best thing I ever did in my life was you. So that makes no sense because, again, the logic in the script is I'm not going to be a captain. Why? Because you're the most important thing. Now, that, that just doesn't, that actually doesn't make sense. And I know it's supposed to make a kind of emotional sense. The idea would be I've prioritized my career ahead of you. But what I think the movie is actually saying what I think the actual subtext would be is that I have an idea of law and order that hasn't let you be who you need to be, and that's corrupted our relationship. Um, and so I'm going to let go of law and order so that our relationship can be whole, and I'm going to center my life around you, Gwen, and submit who I am as a man to who I think you ought to be or want to be as my daughter. Just like Miles' dad eventually is going to learn the lesson of, hey, just like Miles tells him in the guise of Spider-Man, you just need to let your you just need to let your son spread his wings. The idea being submit, submit to Miles, and Dad needs to submit to, and everyone needs to realize that they they've got to stop trying to control Miles and his story because it's wrong to try to control someone else's story. It's wrong to try to impose rules and laws, and people who do that are lame and they stink. And it's a good thing that Miles is too strong for that, and that he's going to be able to break free break all the bonds, break all the rules, break all the laws, show that it's stupid, that the people who make the laws and the rules don't understand, actually that it's their responsibility to create their own destiny, like Oscar Isaac clearly somehow in the plotting, I don't know how yet, but I, I think it will turn out that, hey, and third movie could prove me wrong, 
But it seems to me it's going to turn out that he actually doesn't understand uh, Spider-Man 2099, doesn't understand the, the, the meta rules, the big rules of the universe that he's trying to enforce, that he's actually wrong, and that's part of what makes him a tyrant. He's also going to repent of being a tyrant. He'll repent of being a tyrant, yeah. But I think plot-wise, it's likely that he'll, it'll be shown he's wrong somehow about the rules. And I, I do admit, yeah, I could be wrong about that. I think that's a pretty tenuous point. But and so you've got all these dad figures who are no good and who need to learn to submit to their children. And then you've got mom. It's a good thing that mama is, you know, so wise and stable. Is she so understanding? The dads are just reacting. They're like, whoa, what do we do? Like our, our kids, we don't know how to, how, they're going crazy here. We don't know how to talk to them. We're just going to yell at them. We're going to arrest them. You stink, kid. Why, did, why didn't you listen to me? I yelled at him. We talked. They're all like that. But mom is like, I have a plan. Like, I'm not just reacting. Like, I'm proactive. Like, I've got something to say. I'm going to tell my son, son, you're the most important thing in the world. Don't you dare let anyone else tell you that you can't be part of the awesome club. You make sure that everyone respects you. You make sure that, like, you're the top dog. So mama's got this, mama's got this, like, ego reinforcement speech from Miles, which is, I, I, I hated it in the trailer, and I hated it in the movie. And as the movie went, I have not felt so viscerally angry at a movie for as long as maybe since the first Transformers with Michael Bay, where I felt like these guys are just attacking, what would I say? They're just attacking like basic moral order. And I feel like they're attacking storytelling too. I feel like they're attacking me and they hate me. I feel like they're attacking dads and they're attacking families with their movie because it's just so everything's in play and your job as the hero is to make sure that you're at the center, that you're on top, that you don't have to listen to anyone who tells you what you don't like. You don't have to play by any rules except the rules that you set for yourself. And then along with that, we get all these little clues in the movie. The one that I noticed right off the bat, and there were some that I didn't notice that I read about later, but the one that I noticed, which is right at the beginning of the movie, is a sticker or a sign, a banner in, in Spider-Gwen's room, which is protect trans kids. And I felt like, yeah, this is a good clue. Like the movie is cluing us into what it wants to do, what it wants the subtext to be. And I see plenty of confirming evidences that, that this is right. That like this is a movie about how you set the terms of your own identity. And if you want to be trans or if you want to be anything, no one had better stand in your way or tell you otherwise. So I, I had this reaction as the movie went on, not the whole movie, but there were points at which I was just very angry. And I felt like this movie hates me and I hate it back. And I, I, don't, I don't like it. I don't respect it. And, and as it's going, I find, well, th there's other stuff I want to say about, I guess, just that I think it's boring in places. I think dramatically it doesn't work well in places. I think it's kind of dull and it drags. But mainly it's this thematic stuff or this archetypal stuff or this subtextual stuff that uh, to me felt like the text of the movie. It felt like, hey, we want you to think this way. We want you to believe in this morality. We want you to be pro-trans. Like, and dads do suck, and they do need to get in line. So can I respond to that? Or So here's my question for you. How do you tell a coming-of-age story where a 15-year-old son or daughter is trying to differentiate from their family, and a family's trying, and the dads and moms are trying to negotiate that differentiation? I think you tell it without metatextually cluing me in to the idea that I should overturn rules and order as a rite of passage. So, so 
explain that for me. Well, I see where you're going, Jake, and I there's a difference between being universally hostile and making a point that plays to our current cultural moment of overthrowing all rules and boundaries than there is to like a localized dad doesn't understand me in order to come of age. I have to do I either I'm going to do disrespectful things and then come back from that, or I'm going to do what seem dad to be disrespectful things but aren't in order to win my place and have dad's respect. Any good coming-of-age movie is going to be about testing the boundaries and about parents having to let go and all that sort of thing. But this this movie is different. This movie is more. This movie is philosophical about it. It's like... The whole idea of rules and boundaries is wrong. I think it's is a difference. That, is that actually true, though? Yeah, I believe it's true because okay. I believe that in this movie, dads need to submit to their kids, and that's different. That's different because of what Gwen's dad th- does, I, plot-wise. Okay, well, I think then we should have that discussion okay. rather than assert it because I I don't see that. I'm not convinced that you're right about that. Okay. I don't see the text being dads have to submit to their children. I see. Would you say you don't see, or would you say the jury's out until number three? We could say that the jury's out, but I just don't see Ben asserted that as just like clear as day and obvious already in this movie. And I don't. Well, let's have the discussion. Yeah, we. You have to make a. So I, I did start making a case. I said Gwen's dad's arc follows this pattern, this path. Okay, so, so that's one plot point. Okay. So that's your assertion. That's my assertion. Yeah. So here's the thing, or here's the question. Is it not true that when parents, when dads are suddenly confronted with the idea that their kid may not be who they thought they were, that they often get confused and react and reactionary? Is that not a pretty universal experience? Sure. Isn't that what happens to him? Sure. And so he doesn't know how to reconcile his life, the way he's tried to live his life by his code, and the way that his, and who his daughter, who has tried to embrace that code in her own way. He doesn't know how to reconcile those two, right? So he has a freak out moment. Is, is it not common? Is that not a common thing? Sure. Okay. So does that have to be that... Therefore, the movie is saying dads are stupid. I and he is stupid because he has to throw off law and order to be reconciled and submit himself to Gwen. Or is it just is it possible that he's just we're in a Spider Man movie and that's who I just the movie is like this play of symbols. It's like we're gonna talk about stories and deconstruct them. The movie is not like this is just a drama about a girl. I mean, I recognize that the genius of Lord and Miller is to have both, and that that's what they want. That's what they're good at. That's what they're good at. I recognize that, so I'm going to rein myself back in some. But I, but I think that what's going on in the movie is that... Don't it, you is, think... Is it, the, the, is it the bigger philosophical... Play, like the bigger deconstruction of everything is what guides and helps us interpret the little stories because it seems clear to me watching the movie, which spends so much time on the bigger idea of stories and the universe of stories and the, and the rules for don't break the canon moments of Spider-Man or the universe will break. I think that lets us interpret what's going on in the smaller stories. 
And that lets us interpret like the subtext and the symbolism. Well, let me jump in. I feel some of the same discomfort that you feel about a lot of this stuff. And I do not like where the Gwen story goes. I would say if we just had a mini movie of the Gwen story, I would actually feel pretty bad about that. I think that's your strongest argument. I don't think, I think the Gwen story is indefensible. I think metatextually what they're doing is, could be more interesting. I think metatextually, big picture, the Gwen story, what to talk about first. Okay, let's talk about the Gwen story. Trans kids are owning this story. It's all over the internet today. She's got that trans sticker. It's trans colors. I don't care too much about that, but she's uh, she's at the very least lesbian coded, right? Just the way she looks. She's yeah. other. She's, Which they also, again, being Lord and Miller, made plausible. Yes. They uh, gave themselves plausible deni- deniability on in the very first movie. Yeah. She didn't have a lesbian haircut when she arrived on the scene. That happened because of an incident with Miles, and then she kept it. Right. And so there's a plausibly deniable way of saying, this is her affection for Miles that she, you know, and her love right. of Miles that she's keeping that hair, hair, hairstyle, which of course is just like hyper sophisticated garbage. Right. Yeah. She and is lesbian coded. She is lesbian coded, if not trans coded. And the reason I say trans coded is because she just looks like a dude. They make her not conventionally attractive in the way that, uh, in the face with the, with the buck teeth and stuff. It's, it's actually a very, Oh, they played that up a little bit more in this In this one. movie, yeah. And so it's sort of a, a, you can say that she's been retcon transcoded a little bit. Yes, I think so. And then you have the sticker, which Ant not. Which I didn't notice. Um, so it's right there. I, uh, did you guys notice it without seeing stills and people talking about this? Yeah, I, I, noticed actually, it, I noticed it in the movie. There was other stuff. Did like you, apparently, were you tipped off to it beforehand? Or no. You, okay. No, I wasn't. Uh, it's, I, it's like right on her I, wall. I, I felt yeah. on guard for it. For some reason, I but not, I hadn't read anything about it or seen it still. Apparently, the dad also wears a trans sticker by his badge or something. I didn't catch that. I didn't catch the BLM sticker on Miles' backpack. I heard about that. Well, Those I think what things. really pushes that when, uh, there's an individual line that it, that encapsulates everything. It don't I'm going to actually make some space for the Jake side of things here, if that's the way we want to cast it in a minute, but let me just get some of the stuff out of the way that I do feel strongly about. Lord and Miller are such masters of speaking out of both sides of their mouths in a way that is pretty hateful. And the dad section, Gwen's dad actually has the worst, one of the most, I think, evil versions, something that offended me, which is where she says, dad, I know you have to wear the badge because I wrote down this line. If you don't, someone who shouldn't will. What a laboratory engineered beautiful mona lisa level artistry went into making a line that would play to all sides well then she said actually the line i wrote down wasn't that i wrote down this mask is my badge so i was like but just I, jake you come from a police family I, my brother yeah, I was do. a police officer evil just evil just to write a line that we could plausibly maybe be okay with but the thing that is actually meant to signal to people is no one should want to be a police officer no one should want to be a hierarchical warrior for our society that's a dumb thing that dumb mm-hmm. cruel people evil sadistic people do but maybe a good man puts himself in there to keep the bad guys out. To keep the sadists mm-hmm. that would naturally want to be police officers. I mean, I just, my blood boils. And I, I like things about the movies, but so I'm just getting this out of the way up front since we landed on the Gwen storyline. But that line alone 
combined with all the sort of lesbian and or trans and or whatever coding. It's just such a perfect allegory for, hey, dad, I'm different. Yeah, I I think my... uh, Can I uphold my values or accept that you're different? Can I do both? No, I just have to be done with... I mean, I'm not the one that's making this interpretation. The other sexual people are making this interpretation. They love this storyline. Yeah, and here's what I think about that, though, or the difficulty of it, or the... And maybe the genius of it. I don't think you can make a coming-of-age story without it being a trans allegory or an LGBTQ allegory. And I don't think you can make an LGBTQ allegory without it being a coming-of-age style story in this type of context. And so it's one-to-one. And and I don't think you can do it in a good storytelling <clears throat> storytelling way without it also being the kind of thing that somebody can turn into a an allegory for their conversion to Christianity as yeah. part of their coming of age or differentiate. Because what we're actually just talking about is differentiation. And the genius of Lord and Miller is they're, they're so good at, at walking the line of being plausibly inclusive of absolutely anyone and everything that then it's a question of, okay, so to what degree are they telling a good uh, story that anybody can put themselves into while virtue signaling their way through, or and that's where I feel it, like to what degree is it just subversive? I mean, a we know which side of that coin they fall on, right? Mm-hmm. We know what they're actually signaling, and and so does the entire trans community, like I said, right? With badges and colors and other little signals and things like that. Also, I get what you're saying, and you know, this is why superhero stories have always been an allegory for deviant sexuality so so there is that reality on the other hand i'm not sure i want to go all the way with you in saying there's no way to tell this kind of a story without it a proper coming of age story involves the child and the parent moving towards each other and the parent saying okay i need to let go and let this child move on and the child saying oh now i understand why the hierarchy was there now i understand why my dad felt this way now i understand and so to have the dad, I do think it, it is enormously important and enormously damning that the storyline is, I can't be a police officer anymore. I mean, that's a bad allegory. That's a bad coming-of-age story. That is the worst of everything Ben was felt attacked by. Just like, mm-hmm. And it is a pretty perfect allegory for, I'm a man in my church, and my kid comes out as whatever. So I have to resign as an elder. So I have to resign as an elder. Mm-hmm. And, and it's a better allegory for that than it is for whatever good thing we could say. I agree um, with that. And so I don't like that story. It's beautifully told. It's moving. It's one of the better, it's one of the most visually arresting and best parts of the movie, just in like the, the Gwen opening and then the Gwen come, going back to her dad stuff is is good. All the stuff with the dad to me though felt emotionally off. Part of it was seeing the trans sticker right away, but part of it was, I just, I could feel them being aesthetic instead of truthful. Yeah, and that's where that I didn't have that reaction. I loved how it was kind of like we were in a mood ring or something. Like the colors were changing. It based was. On how it was really felt. cool. I thought it was cool. I thought it was cool. And the vulture fight was awesome. And it just totally badass to not have the credits hit until twenty minutes in. I loved that. That yeah. was that was a surge of adrenaline. Just really great decision making. So I want to get to talking yeah. about some of the things I liked about the movie, but I do actively feel pretty attacked by the Gwen storyline and the way that it wraps up and that everything that I just said, I do not like that. 
And insofar as it's indicative of their larger project, I do share Ben's concerns that ultimately they just want to tear everything down. Now, where I'll make space for the Jake side of things, and at some point I'll actually give my own opinion instead of just reacting, but A, the movie is fun and gorgeous and there's a lot of cool stuff. It's enjoyable to watch and that's that's worth saying. Now, I did actually bog down at a certain point and I'll talk about that at a certain point, but it's I, I did not have the visceral reaction that you did where I, was, I just mm-hmm. felt pummeled by what this movie was doing. It did not strike me like Ryan Johnson's Last Jedi or something like that where I, I was just felt, felt constantly like I had I couldn't even give my heart to the movie. What I want to say is I'll go with you there on the Gwen story. I won't go there with you on Jefferson Davis being a bad dad. I won't go there. I well, hold on. He might become a better dad in the next movie. But there's like a dad meta narrative is what I'm saying in this movie. There's three three dads who are Yeah, you what here's the thing. What every so so M- Miguel's just a tyrant, mm-hmm. right? And what Jefferson Davis is doing is I think being a pretty true to life dad who is trying to figure things out and trying to figure out how to let his son become an adult, which is what he, any 15 year old boy wants. He wants to become an adult. He wants to be treated as an adult. He needs space to do that sort of thing. And your options when your teenage son starts to spread his wings and try to figure out who he is and try to differentiate himself are to try to control him, to try to feel like you can't control him and walk away and just react, which is Gwen's dad. So, or, or to try to find the road that you walk together of leading him into maturity. And that's going to be hard. And it actually involves a lot of flailing. And if you've, if you've watched even the best dads work through this with their kids, there's a lot of flailing that goes on. There's a lot of reactions. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of overreactions. And the way that mom and dad play that and play those scenes is just, you can say, okay, well, that's a caricature. And, but I've seen that dynamic multiple times in good, strong Christian homes. And so I just don't have a problem with now. Again, it, we'll see where they take it and where it goes. But if we're talking about differentiation and coming of age, if you stripped away all the meta narrative, if you stripped away everything, if you didn't have Gwen's dad, if all you had was the story of Miles and Jefferson, I think Ben would probably agree none of us would feel bad, right? That's just a good standard. But boring standard. Sorry, but that's that's a different criticism as far as the Miles part goes. I did. I, thought it was. I did. I did for whatever reason check out a little, maybe some of it had to do with the IMAX, like I said earlier, but I did for whatever reason check out a little bit during the rooftop, like during the interlude in the middle of the movie. I did find that I, I do kind of agree with you there, but that's really neither here sure, or okay. there for our discussion. That's, that's fine. That's fine. Sure. I think you're right. I think without that framing stuff of Gwen's dad, I would, I'd go with you. But I, I think, but with the, with the rest of it, and Miguel, it's like we've put up with this character and a ton of Marvel stuff. Now it's the bad patriarch. He's just a bad guy, yeah. but he's probably yeah. gonna whether he He'll repents have a or not. Of heart or something. But, but I don't know that he will. I think that what we might end up finding is he's more nefarious than we ever knew. So that's interesting. We've already he's already signaled that, like he was about to fang the vulture and then got caught at it, and then 
he's like injecting himself with stuff. We've got these other little things he's, uh, going on. Com- comic book lore, he temporarily paralyzes guys that he bites. He doesn't kill them. Okay. Well, I don't know anything about the comic book lore, but the way that it plays those things is there's a sinister undercurrent yeah. to this guy and there's more to it, even more to his story as he's revealed it than what we actually know. So I, I don't know that we actually understand anything about him or his real motivations, but I think it's all yet to be seen and that's why it's hard to make judgments about. But if I judge this like a piece of music, right? You have all the motifs we're talking about with Miles' dad and like the coming of age story and I'm like, yeah, okay, I, I agree. Those motifs, they're fine. But you put those motifs in the symphony or whatever that this movie is creating, which is Gwen's dad is the framing story for everything. And then you've got a parallel motif with Bad Dad Miguel. And, you, and, you've, and you're playing, the symphony is playing with these big ideas of tearing down structures and st- telling your own story. And telling your own story seems to be the main plot. Then I'm like, the music of this movie to- tells me it, a clear it, story. Isn't, isn't there in any differentiation coming-of-age story, and with your 15-year-old son, a sense in which he actually does need to figure out what his own story is going to be in the path that he's going to take. Yeah, but it's... And as a dad, you have to figure out how to let go and let him make his own decisions and forge his own path forward. But it is... But, but, that, but that's not the music of this movie. The music of this movie is create your own de- destiny in an, in, a, in an ultimate moral sense where the universe ought to bend around... Your identity, you're creating your identity and having that be of paramount importance is the most important thing. That's even what Miles is going to tell his alternate universe mom, you know, like I did it, like I beat them all, like I'm, I became top dog, like I didn't let anyone say no to me. Like I feel like that's the moral of this movie. The mom's speech is the moral of this movie and that's text. So let me, and that's a terrible moral. Let me, but, see, but uh, no, but his. That's not a full or accurate representation of what he says to his mom. Because what he says to his mom, too, is it was always you guys. You're well. That's what I want to. I do agree with Ben. I I think ultimately, whether they get there in the third Spider Verse movie or they get there in a different movie, these guys are postmodern deconstructionists. I think there's a lot of things. There's the whole anarcho terrorist coded, not not even coded, but just there's the anarcho terrorist terrorist Spider-punk. punk Spider Man. There's BLM stickers. There's trans. It's it's like they they couldn't do more to signal that they're in the process of dismantling power and like right. doing things that we hate and that they mm-hmm. hate us. It's it's true. It's there. Ben's not wrong to feel uncomfortable about it or even punished by it. Where I'm sympathetic to Jake's argument is they're smart. They'll do something more interesting. There'll be a sack. Miles is not actually probably going to just get to make his own world with no consequences. Gwen will Mm -hmm. die or who knows what will happen, but there will be a sacrifice made in order for him to self-actualize. They're good enough storytellers. They're not going to do a Ryan Johnson where it's like, I don't even want to give you a satisfying story because I'd rather deconstruct. They're going to figure out how to be smarter than that. So I suspect the third movie isn't just going to end with you get to make your own destiny and throw off all the rules. There'll be a lot of stuff in there that will encourage that, that will help make kids grow in the wrong direction. There'll be stuff that we can feel really bad about, just like there is in this one. But they're not going to be pure Ryan Johnson, Johnsonian nihilists about it. They're too smart. And as far as is this movie in and of itself 
bad. I think the Gwen storyline is, I would say the Gwen storyline, just evil. The other stuff I think is problematic. I was uncomfortable with it. But I did see this with a bunch of teenage boys. I did not feel the need to dissect it for them or take away their enjoyment of it. I, we saw it as a youth group function, folks, if anyone's wondering why I saw this with a bunch of teenage boys. That's why. I did not feel like it was a threat, particularly to them. Maybe because what it's doing is so sophisticated that they would have to be somewhat sophisticated to pick up on some of the bad stuff. Like you have to be media savvy to actually derive the poison. And these this particular bunch wasn't. I think there, I could imagine myself seeing it with a kid who I'd, I'd very much want to have a long discussion with hmm. and say, okay, let's break this down and see what all they're doing, good and bad. So I didn't feel quite as like viscerally bad about it in watching it. I feel the same unease that I felt with the first one. Like, I think these guys are master deconstructionists. I think it's, I think they're wildly smart in the way that they're able to weld their, take traditional narratives and sort of subversively put their deconstruction in there. And I think it was basically a good and fun thing when they did it with the Lego movie, but the more they go after morality itself and I think eventually they will make the movie that we will all just agree no matter how fun this is it's pure poison that's still my prophecy it's been my prophecy since spider-man one and i have never been able to adequately explain to anyone why spider-man one is the tip-off for me or why i'm mad at it when i'm not mad at kevin feige but kevin Feige's not nearly as talented as these guys are he's not as good who cares what kevin feige does it's because they do everything that we criticize every other movie with the same motivations and the same kind of woke people behind it. They do everything well. Yeah. We, so we will go see a Marvel movie or go see any number of movies out there with the same immoral, horrible people behind it and the same types of designs and messages and they suck at it and they're bad storytellers. They're bad visual storytellers. They don't understand how to tell a movie visually. They don't understand how to, how to use a sound. They don't know how to develop characters. They don't know how to tell a story that has heart. They don't know how to put it all together. If they may see you, they're not even on the cutting edge of special effects. They're, they're just no. bad in yeah. every way. Yeah. They're just bad. And so then we go and we see those movies and we say, well, they're fun. It's fun. And it's got some virtue signaling and poison in it. It's but, all like a toothless snake or something. But, it's, well, the virtue signaling but is it, like... But they suck, and the, why can't they make a good movie with dialogue and characterization yeah. and things like that? And we go see this movie, and it actually ticks every single possible box. Mm-hmm. These guys, every time, tick every single possible box. It is visually stunning. The characterization is there. It's got heart. It's got action. It's got everything that you could want top to bottom. And they're just as bad and deviant as anybody else, but there's a level at which they demand to be taken seriously. Right. And on that um, level, I can't be comfortable with this movie, but more, I think it's, I could still say it's a signpost of what's to come. That Gwen storyline does bug me quite a bit. And, and I am so tired of meta narratives and deconstruction. It's so boring. I was talking to somebody. They, I felt like they were too. And they, yeah, here they are. Yeah, they were like, oh, well, we have to do this. And so they like tipped their hat here and dialed it back there. And it was still too much. It was. Yeah. But but you felt them pull back from it. Yeah. This was fun the first time. And we know we have to like acknowledge that this is the, these are the train tracks that we laid Mm -hmm. while Mm -hmm. also trying to. 
No. Now we're downstream of Loki. We're downstream of everything everywhere all at once. We're downstream of all these things that have already done this. Doctor Strange. Dr. Strange did it horribly. But I mean, it is just, I was comparing this to somebody like, man, this is the first time where it's really graded on me in terms of, and this isn't their fault necessarily. They were just stuck with having to do this. But it, it is just like, man, what if somebody made a Lord of the Rings movie and it was about how hobbits always go on journeys and we're going to break the paradigm of a hobbit going on a journey or we're going to accept the paradigm of a hobbit going on a journey. But the one thing we're not going to do is just go on the the dang journey. <laughs> I was like, I like hobbit movies where hobbits go on journeys. I don't need somebody to keep like asking the question, what is it that makes a journey for hobbits? It's like, that's, uh, I'm really tired of this. And I don't feel like Spider-Man deserves it. I feel like it's like they're in their minds, and this isn't so much a criticism of the movie or Lord of Miller as just where we're at as a culture. In their minds, it's one of the reasons we can do these meta narratives is because we're playing with a quasi biblical text here. We've got the most important myth of our time and we're interrogating it. And I'm like, it's not the most important myth of our time. It's not that great. It's Spider Man. He swings around on a web. I don't mean to be dismissive. There's a reason these things have cultural staying power, but. You know, the great question of does every Spider-Man have to sacrifice? It ain't that great of a question. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, yeah. I, I'd be lying if some of my, frust- if I didn't say some of my frustration was the feeling of like plot slowdown, like that kind of plotting was like, I don't find this question compelling. It makes the whole thing feel more abstract and more pointed in its deconstruction to me as I'm watching yeah, I felt some of that. If that makes sense. I enjoyed it on a scene-to-scene basis. I really liked India, even though that had some of the more annoying overt virtual signaling. I liked Spider-World, uh, 2099, whatever. I liked most of the second half action. What are the other things I liked? Just to, to, to be a liker instead of a hater. I liked the look and feel of the Gwyn stuff enormously. I liked the vulture. He was a cool bad guy. I like Spot. He was a cool bad guy. He was a fun, had a fun Spider Man-y kind of bad guy. Just a normal guy who got hit with the wrong thing and became bitter. That's my favorite st- classic style of Spider Man villain. And I, I like the villain of the week. Who? Mm-hmm. I mean, that is that is what he felt like. Yeah, that's why they called him that. They, they that did was a, fun. I thought they did a nice job with him, and I look forward to seeing where he goes. And I assume it'll be somewhere yeah, he interesting. Was fun. Yeah, so in just in terms of entertainment value, I was a little bit like, I don't need another sort of interrogation of the Spider-Man myth slash any interrogation of the Spider-Man myth. And also, yeah, I did. Some of it was just IMAX animation, but the the parent stuff on the rooftop and the mom speech, I, I was kind of checked out on. I was just like, I'm not sure these emotional scenes would actually distinguish themselves in a drama. They distinguish themselves here because they're not something that you expect in this type of movie to be done at this level. But I'm not, I don't know, her little thing about take care of the boy that like, like we're both co-parents now of the child that you were. I don't get that. I don't get what's emotional about that. I'm not trying to be a, a jerk here. I, I just, I'm just saying like I didn't, maybe Jake as a father of teenagers, that was profound i I don't know you're a father of teenagers i'm not i don't think there's anything profound about it but i think that there is there's something innate to a mom who and to motherhood where you're always you always see your kid as your baby boy or your baby girl 
and don't ever want to lose or let go of that. That's part of what dad has to, has to help mom do. And so that's part of mom's angle. Right. Part of dad's angle is always sort of this sense of both he's got, he has to give up a certain amount. Like you, you guys have toddlers and babies and there is a, the identity of your toddler and baby, but even your toddler is like trying to figure out like, what are the boundaries between me and mom and dad? Mm -hmm. And that's where the toddler is like pushing and trying to say no and trying to, you know, what uh, that stage of that people call the terrible twos into the threes is that's what it is. It's trying to figure out the separation between me and mom. What's me and, or what's mom and what's not mom, what's dad and what's not dad in me. And your infant children are just one-to-one synonymous with you guys. They, there is no individuation. And that's just the process that every kid goes through stage by stage as they grow up. And mothers typically want to keep their kids little and keep them their little babies and keep them close to the breast. And dads struggle. And they feel as a son or as a child grows more in their own agency, dad feels a loss of control and with that loss of control, impotence. And with that sense of impotence that I can't actually control your friends and I can't actually control your thoughts and I can't actually keep you from making the wrong decisions. I have to have done a good job of raising you and I have to trust you and I have to give you space to become yourself. And I, with that, there's anger, there's lashing out, there's pulling back from that. And there's a line that you you walk as a dad, as you try to create space for your kids to become that. And, and you have to do that work with your wife as well. And so all of those types of, of realities are what they're playing with. And so in those scenes, the degree to which that tension is alive in your heart is probably the degree to which you're going to connect or resonate with those types of scenes. So those scenes actually worked really well for me because yeah. I have a 15-year-old son and a 13-year-old daughter. And I've walked through those types of things and the difficulties of those types of things with good fathers who have excommunicated their children and seen them go under church discipline and see them do things that they, and I've just watched them flail and wrestle and grapple with those types of, of issues as they have tried to figure out for themselves. And we've all, each of us walked through that ourselves one way or another and watched our parents hmm. You know, I had to watch my dad deal with the fact that I grew up in a baseball family in my senior year of high school, I quit baseball. And we have family photos of us all in Purdue gear and I went to IU. And I had to watch him figure out how to wrestle with the, I raised my son to be a Purdue fan and he wants to go to IU and play baseball and he quits. And is this a judgment of me? And did I fail? And what did I do wrong? And does he hate me? And I feel like I'm losing him. And how do we get through this to the other side of it where he's a mature adult and we have a mature adult relationship? And that's just what the teen years are. It's pain for everybody and flailing for everybody into early 20s. And hopefully you come out on the other side of that with some kind of strength. And so all that for me as a dad is poignant. So I felt all of those scenes. Yeah, I don't, uh, I don't think I'm insensible to those things. I think. Well, you're a youth group leader. I hope I hope you wouldn't. Be. Yeah, I think I think I don't necessarily accept. Uh, not that you were saying this, but if our neighbor listeners was thinking, well, okay, the moral of the story is Nathan 
doesn't like this stuff because he's just not there in his life. I'm not sure I accept that. I think it just, it didn't work for me because it didn't work for me, not because I'm insensible to. Are you saying, Jake, that you did like the mom's speech or you thought basically it worked? I thought it worked as a, I thought it worked. I'm not saying that I... I will say I I would have preferred that that scene be given to the the dad because that's the relationship that I actually care about, some version of that scene. It felt kind of weird that it wasn't given how much we're... Invested in the father-son stuff. And how little we actually invested in it. It felt like they were kind of retconning. Mom's important too. We forgot about her last time. That's what it felt like to me. But it didn't feel false. It did feel like... it, It felt pretty... So if you just want... Okay, so there's the what are what's this story they're trying to tell? The Zach question. But if we're just talking on the level of true to life, yes, like, it's a good scene. And Lord took it from his life, I think. I, I just I don't like it. I don't like it as a mom speech in the movie. It represented to me the ascendancy of mom over dad. That's just how I heard the music of the movie. This is okay. All the dads suck, but mom doesn't. And mom's going to give this speech that is just sounds to me like pandering. Like mom pandering. Like well, it could be that the third just movie, don't like it. when when we ha- when all said and done, we hate that speech more than anything because it represents the the whole scheme of deconstruction and embrace the sort of you know right. be an infant forever. Basically, like what you need to do is suckle at the teat of mom and never actually define yourself against against or for the hierarchy of dad. I share your fear that actually what that represented. Um, again, I didn't feel it as viscerally in the moment as you did. The thing that I felt most viscerally and that w- in terms of something of dislike was the way the Gwen story ended up as, and just, I don't know, maybe I, I'm getting old and grumpy maybe. And I, I hate repeating it because it feels like it would be better maybe to just not let this kind of thing bother me anymore because it's just, it's ubiquitous and who cares? And it's, I should just be empowered enough in my own masculinity to not be bothered by this. But I am sick of women warriors and watching women's bodies do stuff that they don't do and having to regard them. But if they were bit by a radioactive Mm. spider, (laughs) that's the, (laughs) if they had the force. Yeah. I, I just as semiotics as typology, <laughs> I'm tired of watching a woman's legs do those things and having to regard regard them as desexed, even though they're obviously sexually enticing woman legs. Yeah, and watching in this case a pregnant lady do all of that. Yeah, semiotically didn't care for the pregnant lady. I didn't actually feel all that bad about. I, I've heard some Christians complain and conservatives complain about Peter and his baby. I just thought that was cute. Well, it was definitely put in to be the counterbalance, counterpoint to the pregnant lady. Like, so let's not let's not be too critical of mom taking baby into battle because we've got a dad taking baby into battle. Right, and and that has its own that. I, I, ultimately, I don't care for that either. <laughs> I don't think you should bring your baby into battle, and especially if you've got a perfectly good Mary Jane at home to take care of the baby, then why not let her? But I didn't viscerally. I was really annoyed when the pregnant lady came out on the motorcycle. I was less annoyed when Peter came out with his adorable little mm-hmm. spider baby or whatever. I hated them both. I didn't like Peter. I thought Peter sucked the air out of the room. Well, Peter is a good point in Ben's favor for... I forgot about him. How many bad dads and lame, ineffectual dads do we have to have in one movie before we start to think there's a design? Yeah, but the he's never been a good a good or sufficient. Yeah, but he we thought maybe he got somewhere last time. 
like, like if I'm writing this movie, Peter's in Miles's corner from the moment he sees how far Miguel's willing to go. He's let's get rid of the pink bathrobe and I'm fighting for you, Miles. And and I know that's where this movie goes anyway. But if I'm writing this movie, it goes there a lot quicker because Peter is Miles's friend. He's a good father figure insofar as he goes. And if nothing else, he's loyal and a chill dude. But even his his speech when he pulls Peter pulls Miles away from the fight is going to be like, the reason I had this baby, Miles, is because you're awesome. And I think you're the best. And actually, I'll be on your side. Which just, again, feels like pandering to the one, the whoever is watching Miles as their own avatar. It's like, yeah, I'm the best. That's the idea. You're supposed to be the best. It's just about you. That all feels of a piece, at least. Yeah, I mean, the question in my mind is, what price does Miles have to pay for me to be okay with his uh, self-actualization? I know the one thing he's not going to do in the third movie is say, you were right, Dad, and you were right, Miguel, (laughs) and it was wrong for me to... I was actually just being like Kingpin, which he is, by the way, which is something that the movie has to address in the third movie, or it's just being disingenuous. Miles makes the exact same choice that Kingpin makes in the first movie, and Kingpin's a bad guy to make that choice, but Miles is a good guy to make that choice. Wait, it's not the exact same choice. I am willing to see the world, the universe destroyed in order to save the one that I love. That was Kingpin's choice. And Miles is like, well, maybe it won't destroy the universe. I'm going to find out. I'm going to tell my own story. But I think there's nothing morally different about what Miles decides than what Kingpin decides, I don't think. Only that he simply has an intuition or a suspicion that... Miguel's premise is wrong. Right. Which right. is which is fair enough, but I still think the movie's being disingenuous. And that and that, that means that he has to passively stand by and watch people die. Yes, I I would agree with that. But as I, opposed to Kingpin who's willing to who's, tear apart the fabric of the universe to restore already dead people. Restore already dead people that he can't make his peace with, which is to say steal them from other from other stories, other universes. Right. I, I still think that's something the movie needs to interrogate if it's going to be sure. play honest. Sure, um, yeah. It has to have an answer for that question because th- what they're doing is at least similar even if Miles is maybe, you know. Yeah, well, you're going to have to come to a moment where Miles', is, Miles intuition is either proven right that it's actually not going to tear apart the fabric of the universe for him to just be Spider-Man and try to and pull off saving both and taking care of his family or... It, there it is right in front of you, and the, uni- the fabric of the universe is actually unraveling, and now he's got that decision to make. And it's actually the same decision, which is the meta crap of it all, right? Can you, do, can you actually do both? It's mm-hmm. like the it's turtles all the way down. Right, and if they go that direction, then I, I suppose what they should do in that moment, what they probably will do is have Gwen say, okay, now my empowered decision is to be the sacrificial lamb that makes this all work. And instead of being the passive bystander, Gwen Stacy, that just gets killed by you being stupid, I'm going to throw myself into the maw of the abyss in order to give everyone what they want. And everybody will feel good about that because it'll feel like a decent meta price has been paid and a decent emotional price has been paid for for Miles' self-actualization, but Miles hasn't been the one that actually has to pay the price, which also feels good because he was able to do something a little different. And But who knows where they'll go with it. Most people that I read seem to 
assume that Gwen dies. So I guess it must be, that's what I assumed to get it walking out of the movie is like, I don't even know why, but obviously Gwen dies. And then I kept reading things on the internet where people were also felt the same. We're down one fancy wristwatch. Down one fancy wristwatch? Yeah, if they're going to go pull Miles out of Earth 42. Oh. Somebody's going to have to stay behind. Or they're going to have to go to a different Spider-Verse. Well, no, that it just opened portals. Anyone could go through it. If one person has the watch to open the portals, you could all go through it together. But then you need a watch to stay But then you need a watch in. to keep from glitching. Yeah, but all you have to do is get Miles into his own universe and he won't glitch because that's where he belongs, right? I guess you're right, yeah. But you are opening up the idea that maybe the sacrifices, someone has to stay in some universe. Get, maybe, get left behind. Maybe Prowler Miles is... That just sounds lame. Sorry. It's going to kill Gwen or something. But that, that, that's, that that's a little that's too... Stupid. No, too Gwen, Gwen is... The one thing they can't do, I don't think, is have Gwen die as a consequence of... Miles being stupid or anything like that. Yeah. If Gwen's going to die, it's because Gwen makes that choice. If if Gwen died as a consequence of Miles being stupid, then I think we'd all feel good. The hmm. the the thing about why I even when it came to the Gwen story felt some degree of okay, this isn't complete. I'm going to hold judgment here is it felt as much, as much as it was framed as dad can't reconcile his commitments to his daughter, so he's going to give up his commitments and then go from there. It also felt like a shoehorned and a really clunky shoehorned and plot point that's going to be part of how we resolve or understand the resolution of the final story. If he's not captain, he doesn't have to die. Hmm. I could be, yeah. Which was part of my assumption hmm. with how that was all sort of like layered in and part of maybe the solution of, and and maybe the part of the solution that actually reinforces Ben's point because if if Jefferson Davis has, if, if Miles and Gwen come up with a way to draw a line and make Jefferson Davis walk away from, from becoming captain in order to make it safe to break the, to, to break the cannon event or whatever. It's just mm. like, but they're just too smart for it to be that clunky. But that's what it felt like was a kind of clunky plot point mm-hmm. pulled into, into this mm-hmm. narrative to make the narrative what we wanted it to be and also to lay in a, a level of gun on the wall setup. And so for, yeah. a pay, for a payoff. But I just don't think they're, they're actually that. That's a good point. I just, I think. They're not that clunky. I think what they wanted. I mean, she has that moment. She literally says, "So you're not captain uh-huh. anymore." Right. Yeah. That's like true. That I remember that. You're supposed to be like, like, "Wait a minute! It's the captain that has to die, but he's not a captain, so he doesn't have to die in this story." <laughs> I think also yeah. what is true. One of the reasons why I think we all feel better about judging this movie by the Gwen storyline than any of the other ones is this movie is cast as, "Hey, you were expecting a Miles movie. It's actually a Gwen movie," and Insofar as it's a Gwen movie, it does actually it tell a complete story with Gwen fully self-actualized and ready to go into battle with her all her buddies at the end. Like Miles is still has important choices and things and hero's journey stuff ahead of him. But Gwen basically goes on a whole hero's journey in this movie hmm. and becomes the person that she needs to. And that's the last That's a good point. That's the last image of the movie. 
Mm-hmm. And so from that perspective, I'm like, well, it's not a Gwen, insofar as it's a Gwen movie, it's not a good, a, a Gwen movie that I feel anything but hates me and I hate it. Anything else? The other thing I'll say in favor of Ben's arguments is that we always sort of say, you have to look at how the pagans are interpreting this and not be too good to have, to be like, well, every, all the pagans are saying that it's this. So they do all say it's, they are all loving the trans metaphor of it all. They're all, they all are saying like, oh man, it's so great that our kids have this anarcho-terrorist Marxist dude 60 years from now. Kids, my kids will look back on this character. And mm-hmm. again, Lord and Miller are too smart to do do that entirely stupidly the way a Feige or a Johnson would like. That character is played with a little irony. The joke's on him just enough that you don't mm-hmm. feel in totally totally assaulted as a conservative by that that character. Like he's he's a, just a little bit annoying, but he's also really cool. Right. I remember just so a long time ago, I saw a movie that has nothing to do with Spider-Man. I, I saw that Talladega Nights movie with Will Ferrell, mm-hmm. you know, the race car driver spoof sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And they have the villain character is gay. And yes. there, there's this scene where the newscasters are like doing a little reel about him and his gay lover and their dog. And the newscasters are both sort of morally horrified in a really funny way. Just to let you as the viewer know, hey, we actually think this is cute and funny. but also giving you a little moral indignation so that the joke's on this guy just enough. And that... That you says, don't feel too bad about it. That's right. It's right. all about mainstreaming, actually. Well, that's been the gay whole... Identity, that's, so. gay, that's, that's, just, that's how gay identities... That's how they do everything. You go all the way back to the 20s with that sort of thing. Yeah. Yep, like, right. yeah. We're going to cast them as the villains, and you're yeah. going to kind of like the villains. That's right. And then we're going to cast them as the comic relief, and you're going to laugh at them, but you're going to be accepting them as you laugh at it's us. Amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. It's, it's just... It's so... It just works really well. <laughs> Yeah, and this movie has a lot of stuff like that that's that's troubling. That anarcho-terrorist guy is troubling. And the pregnant lady and just all the little things that add up to... Uh, There's some, a lot of it. Of a woke, whatever it is. At a certain point when you have enough little things signaling that we hate the whole Judeo-Christian West, you kind of have to just take their word for it. Yeah. So in that sense... I don't know. I hope people don't hear me as being disingenuous or unwilling to choose between Ben's unvarnished hatred and Jake's enjoyment of the film. I I think it's problematic. I, I think was pretty annoyed by the fact that we just didn't get finality so that we could just have the real discussion. Have the real yeah. discussion. Yeah. How long do we have to wait, by the way? For... A year. Just a year. Yeah. It's 2024. Yeah. Okay. But um, apparently... None of the voice work's been done on it. And um, we're in the middle of this writer strike. So. And we're in the middle of a writer strike. But that doesn't mean it's pretty clear that they wrote what they actually did was write a four or five hour movie. Yeah. And then decide to cut it in half. Right. I mean, the problem with the writer's strike is if I'm if I understand things correctly, when the writers are striking, I may not, as the director, like when I'm in the room with the voice actors, I can't say, try this alternate line. I need a writer to to write it. Now, maybe the writer writing it just means he's sitting next to me saying, yep, but the rules are, it's, it's one of the reasons why movies do just shut down even if they have completed scripts because most movies will have a writer, quote unquote, on set and he'll be pitching mm-hmm. things back and forth and particularly with a jokey, zany, a lot of moving parts movie like this or like the MCU type stuff. It's pretty hard to do, even if you have a script that's nailed down it's pretty hard to do without huh. a writer 
So I think as a roller coaster ride, I was there for the full time slot and I would have been there for another hour or so hmm. to wrap it up. I was along for the ride. The only place I felt bogged down by was when we were in the lobby of Spider-Man Hotel. Yeah, and I mean, I actually... had to like act like we cared about Peter Parker's baby and think it was funny that we didn't actually care and nobody cared, but also it was cute, but wasn't it? it was just like all that stuff was... The writing's good in this movie. It's, it's sharp, but it is interesting. Just a random observation. There, there weren't a lot of jokes that made me laugh minus the stuff that had already been burned in the trailer like the psychiatrist mm-hmm. spider-man or the get the spider-man yeah there weren't like a the biggest kind of unexpected sort of laugh moment was the lego thing and that didn't really get me personally but i guess i was expecting some usually with these guys you're going to get something like what we felt walking out of dungeons and dragons where it's just like well there was that one part that was delightful that was just like this movie didn't really have no, I don't that. I don't remember actually laughing. Yeah, I'm not sure if I did. I was too busy <laughs> hating. Growling. Growling. Growling loudly. Everyone was telling me to shut up. Shut up, Ben. <laughs> Any other thoughts on this movie? Random scenes that you liked, things that you thought were interesting, stuff that you guys Vulture action scene was my favorite. Vulture of scene all was, the action. Vulture scene was really cool. Although even there it's like we're in a museum. We're talking about what constitutes <laughs> art. I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, But that's yeah. also Spider-Man. Yeah, I, I, I don't disagree. Spider-Man's going to be quipping. That's just the problem. It's, it's, it's quipping, but yeah, you're right. It is about, it is funny that they, they're like, it's not, it's not art exactly, but it is commenting on art. So that is a kind of art. That, I mean, actually, that was pretty funny. That's clever stuff. Yeah, no, as a statement of intentions, that first 20 minutes is terrific. It's yeah, yeah. it's kind of my only problem awesome. with it is that I'm I'm sick tired to of death it. of women, yeah, uh, yeah, yep, doing yep. gymnastics. But I agreed, and especially I did find Gwen's whole look and just the the semiotics of Gwen were were more troubling this time ago. I, I guess I'd forgotten that she didn't actually have that haircut the first time around. But me too. Or she got it, you're saying, halfway through or uh-huh. something. What yeah. happens is Miles gets his powers, and he gets in, when he's introduced to her, he gets his hand caught in her hair. Uh, that's right. Okay. And they have to shave it off. And that's the whole plausibility yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. behind yeah. the lesbo haircut. Uh-huh. Yep, I remember yeah. that. Man, these guys are good. Yeah. Got us again. A level of... Yeah, they're... They, this, have, this levels to this stuff, and they always have one extra one. Mm-hmm. One more than you would think. Yeah. I don't know if I like that, but I admire it on some level. I wish it was in the surface of good, but I suppose that's too much to hope for. It's a, you can actually be the idiot who thinks that Gwen has her lesbian haircut to this day because she's in love with Miles Morales. Mm -hmm. And they could make that the text of the movie. And yet. And those are the only arguments that I don't like. We'll (laughs) release this episode and somebody will come up to me or, or one of us and say something like that. Guys, you could be Team Ben, you could be Team Jake, you can be Team Nathan, I don't care, but we should be having the discussion on a more sophisticated level than that, whatever that is. Just, well, the math. Just because they get, created an internal logic with a math equation that adds up to Gwen has this haircut because she's in love with Miles, doesn't mean that they didn't insert the whole equation so that she can have a lesbian coded or or transcoded haircut. Yes, as Ben was kind of saying, you're reading the lyrics, but did you listen to the music? 
you just read the lyrics there and that's doesn't really tell you what a song is bozo the clown so i like the horse spider-man <laughs> that was kind of fun did, did do as much with the fun ask me if, ask me if i like it do you do you like it nay <laughs> sorry I, I actually liked it i, I was afraid that to... might happen i was like i know where this metaverse is branching off <laughs> <laughs> i wish i could take a different path i guess you I have that bad. you're stuck pure politeness yeah, yeah. I wish Miles still had his teenage voice. I wish the actor hadn't aged, but nothing you can do about that, I guess. Huh. I was actively kind of... I didn't of, think it changed. Did it not? No. I, I, I guess I didn't either. I thought he was already older when he, was, he did. Uh, that's what I thought. His What's his name again? Shamik Moore, maybe? Yeah, Shamik. I, no, I'm curious. Let's I'm listen to a that. sample. He's 28. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and so... He was 25 or something. 24, right? 24, 24 right? or 25 before. I, uh. His voice is more or less going to be set at 24. I guess I just got confused because I don't know the first movie well enough. I was like, how old is this kid? He's still young enough to be grounded, I guess, but... He's, he's in high school. He's like he's fifteen. Yeah, That's what they he didn't they read as fifteen to me with the, okay. between the voice and the he and actually the way they aged up the model. Seventeen or eighteen was what I was felt like the whole yeah, movie. Yeah, he he looked. I didn't, I didn't follow the timeline. I was, was aware of the fact that, that works. Was, was that nothing? I was going to go back to the previous argument, but there's no need. Ooh, anything else, Jake? Anything else you liked or didn't like or want to mm-hmm. draw attention to? Mm-mm. Soundtrack was cool. Yep. Yep. I don't know if it had any bangers that were as immediately bangable as the first one, but no, maybe they'll grow on me. Nothing that stuck with you, like What's Up Danger or Sunflower, mm-hmm. like in, as terms of a, in terms of earworm. Yep. No, those are awesome earworms. Uh, but it was cool. Yeah. I'm just looking over my notes here. I have nothing else to say besides go to patreon.com forward slash sanity at the movies. You can be on Discord. You can be part of this discussion. You can be like, but he got his hand stuck in her hair. That's why she had her hair gone. And we will be polite to you because you're giving us money. <laughs> but we'll resent it. <laughs> but we will resent it. Yeah. <laughs> but we'll be your dancing monkeys. <laughs> <laughs> we can be bought we can be bought <laughs> no 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 we have a great group and of, our price is five dollars a month yeah we can be bought very cheaply <laughs> uh, 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 no no we have a great group of patrons they're fun to talk about i'm looking forward fun to, to talk about they're fun to talk about <laughs> behind their backs. behind their backs with the mics off but right not fun to talk to no right. we don't we don't like that but yeah we uh uh, uh yeah um mm. Yeah, we have a great group of patrons. They are fun to talk with. It is fun to be on Discord with them. It is fun to get their thoughts. It is fun to get their recommendations. It feels like there's some people excited about Killers of the Flower Moon on our Discord, which means it's cool and not just wanting us to review Spider-Man movies, which is great. I approve of the people on our Discord. I think you, yes, you should be part of it. You go to patreon.com forward slash sending the movies right now. You click a few buttons. You give some credit card information. You enter into a whole new world. That's all. There isn't any more. Goodbye. Until next time. Oh, dear. So, do you have a line from the movie? No. <laughs> I just... 
Always get caught flat-footed on these. You got like nine seconds. <laughs> no. This mask is my badge. <laughs> I'm starting the music again. <laughs> no. Uh, this mask is my badge. <laughs> no. <laughs> Across the Spider-Verse quotes. Uh, oh, no. We're almost out. Okay, I'm going to have to play it a third time. An unprecedented third time. <laughs> Until next time. Let's do things differently this time. So differently. Nah, I'm going to make my own podcast. Too punk rock to give your old man a hug? <laughs>